It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 14, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Today's show takes a bit of a different tack from the rest of the Farmer to Farmer podcast to date. Instead of a farmer or somebody who's intimately involved with farming, today's guest is environmental filmmaker and activist John DeGraff. John has a history of working with organic farmers and others in the agricultural world to tell their stories. I'd really appreciate your feedback about having this sort of guest on the show. Please let me know your thoughts on Facebook or on Farmer to Farmer podcast.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Fertrell.com. Welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast, everybody. I'm so pleased to introduce my guest today, John DeGraff. John is, well, I don't know, how would you say it? An environmental filmmaker and an activist. Um, I've known John's work for a long time. We've had some, we have some interesting tangential connections through farms that I've worked with and people that we've both known. Um, John is also the executive director of Take Back Your Time, an organization challenging time, poverty, and overwork in the United States and Canada. I had John to be an interesting guest to give us some perspective for the times that he's been involved in agriculture, kind of on the outside, but then also how, how managing time both for for our customers and for us as farmers uh, has an influence on local foods and maybe some things that we can we can all do to do a little bit better job job of that so john welcome to the show well thank you my pleasure john so um in your own words can you tell us a little bit about about the work that you've done as an environmental filmmaker and activist and the work that you're currently doing sure i guess i'm all over the map i'm one of those people who can never quite settle down and, and specialize in any one thing and so uh, I first came to your part of the world. I grew up in, in California and uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I really, my big memories of childhood were these long summer trips into the Sierra Yosemite and places like that as a kid. I got the, my parents were willing to let me go with friends to the mountains for two, three, even six weeks each summer by ourselves when, when we were in high school. So uh, well, something that made me pretty sort of interested in the natural world and environment. And and then uh, after a year at Berkeley, I joined VISTA, the Domestic Peace Corps, and they sent me out to northern Wisconsin. So I worked there on an Indian reservation called Bad River near uh, Ashland, Wisconsin, then went uh, to University of Superior and at Madison for changed uh, to, to sociology and ended up uh, moving up to Duluth, Minnesota to start a work on, do some work on a free clinic there as a community organizer, which I had been, been trained to be, and got involved with radio at the university in Duluth and then uh, eventually with television. But uh, one of the first film projects that I uh, made, the second one that I made actually was about a fellow named Alan Chadwick who had developed this French intensive biodynamic gardening system and um, that was becoming kind of very popular at the time and another fellow named John Jevons who was trying to spread that as a way to help deal with hunger around the world and then shortly after I made a film with three women farmers in Minnesota who were um, this was in the early 80s, and they were dealing with all of the big ag 
issues at the time. So Alice Tripp in particular, who had run for governor of Minnesota, was fighting a massive power line that was being uh, pushed down through through central Minnesota. She was a dairy farmer. Patty Kakak doing the same. And then Ann Canton uh, farmed uh, sugar beets and, and uh, wheat and other things out in south central Minnesota. And uh, she was an advocate for the American agriculture movement. Later, she later became the assistant commissioner of agriculture in Minnesota. So I did that film for PBS, and that really equated me very much with the issues that farmers were facing. And I, I got connected with a, a songwriter named Larry Long, who also was involved in the tractor cage to Washington and other things. And so I've had an interest in this issue for a long time and made quite a number of films related to both the environment but also to uh, sustainable food production. And I think the I, the one that you did that first came to my attention, or at least where I was I was aware that your name was attached to it, was was the film Hot Potatoes. Um, potatoes are kind of what sucked me into the world of farming, anyways, because I I grew up in the city and. They do and that. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there's it's such a fascinating crop, and I I, I always I'll never forget that. I spent a summer growing potatoes at, at Deep Springs College out in California, and um, the crop had been planted when I when I got there, so I didn't see that process. But I I grew them and I hilled them and I irrigated them, and and I I always knew sort of at an intellectual level that the potatoes were under the ground. But I remember digging them up and going, "Oh, there's potatoes really under the ground!" And like, what a fascinating idea that was, and and kind of that that was sort of what propelled me into saying, I'm going to, I'm going to spend a lifetime working in agriculture. Uh, and well, I, you and, 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 then, and neither has both, you know, the, the subject of the main subject of hot potatoes. He also went to deep Springs college. So that's a, that's a fascinating connection. And then became a, a potato scientist. I uh, wanted to mention before we go a little further into that though, that, um, I did a film before that called Genetic Time Bomb about the erosion of uh, genetic diversity around the world of crops. And uh, one of the or, uh, organizations that I profiled in that particular film was the Seed Savers Exchange. So I came to Decorah and met with Kent Whaley and others there at the Seed Savers Exchange and had that in the documentary. It happened to get there at just the wrong time. It was a Seed Savers Exchange annual summer meeting uh, in July of 1993, and at that time, you guys were under some of the worst floods ever, and the fields were all, right. all wet, and uh, you could, we, we, in fact, one day we couldn't even drive because the freeway was closed uh, trying to get there, so we got it, we arrived a day late, and uh, but uh, still, what a wonderful group of people, and uh, Decora uh, has a, a real place in, in my heart. I have other friends there. I was there for your Oneota Film Festival a couple of years ago, and I really, really enjoy that town. It's a it's a special place. It's a really special place. And, and Seed Savers was, you know, it, well, that was the thing that really got me going about the potatoes was was really the, the genetic. I mean, it was not only the, the fact there were these cool nuggets under the ground, but it was also um, having grown up in a world of, of white potatoes with brown skins was discovering uh, the, the really incredible diversity that was out there. And this was back in 1990 when, you know, you couldn't just walk into a store and buy purple potatoes uh, right. the way that you can now. You know, that's that's a pretty normal thing now. But back then, boy, that was that was quite the far out undertaking. And um, so the 
it's it's interesting to me that you kind of had that that same arc of the genetic diversity and then and then into the into the world of tubers. Now, the potato <laughs> famine actually started 170 years ago, and this was was what. Um, well, I actually could be really interesting if if you talked a little bit about about John Niederhauser's uh, history. If you're, I don't know if you can rattle that off the top of your head. Well, I, I can give you a little information. I, I'm going to give you a tiny bit of background. One of the things that I learned when I first met with Kent Whaley when I was in Decoria in 93 was about this incredible story in the Soviet Union in the 1940s uh, in Leningrad where these uh, scientists, some of them potato scientists, actually starved to death at their desks at this place called the Vavilov Institute, uh, started by Nikolai Vavilov, who was the world's leading sort of plant scientist. He was a uh, an explorer around the world. He started the world's first seed bank there in Leningrad. And under the German uh, invasion, these uh, scientists were sitting on mountains of seeds, which they could have cooked and fed themselves because there was no food. Uh, but instead, many of them actually chose to die. They starved rather than take from those seeds that they considered so precious. So that was a fascinating story. Uh, I've been in the show program had the chance to go to uh, St. Petersburg, which Leningrad is now called, and to visit the Lilov Institute, talk to scientists whose friends had died during that time. These guys were 80, 90 years old, but they were still crying as they talked about this, the story. And, uh, and then uh, made this film, Genetic Time Bomb. And then I got a call after it showed on a San Francisco television station. I got a call from a woman who told me that her father had met Nikolai Vavilov uh, as a young man and that her father was, uh, was a potato scientist and was now very involved in this trying to deal with this new epidemic of potato blight. And he turned out to be, of course, John Niederhauser. And I met him shortly afterwards, and his, his story was absolutely fascinating. I actually corresponded with John when I was a student at, at Deep Springs. And for those of you who are listening that don't know this, Deep Springs is a it's a school that has maybe it's a two year college and it's got maybe 24 students at a time there. So, you know, we're the we're a pretty small group of people. It's been around since 1917 for as long as the Soviet Union and it's still going strong. Um, the and and so John was actually Niederhauser was a was a student there, I think, in the class of 1935 was when he graduated. That's right. He graduated in 1935 and uh, he was going to go to Cornell. And he didn't actually know what he was going to do at Cornell. Uh, he thought it might have something to do with agriculture, but he wasn't even sure. And he had the, the summer free, and he had a little money. And uh, so he he was um, he saw a poster that was advertising $99 trips on a steamship to anywhere in the world that the Cunard steamship line went to. And they had just opened up service to Leningrad, the first service to Russia ever there in that summer of 35. And so John said he walked up, plunked down his $99 on the, on the uh, counter and told the agent, I want to go to Leningrad. And uh, he did. He went there and he was, he'd been there for actually uh, a couple of weeks. And he said everything, of course, was in Russian. He couldn't understand anything. He didn't have anybody to talk to. It was interesting. But suddenly he was, uh, there was a, uh, a little exhibition that was up about tractors and about things of, 
put on by uh, the United States because they were just opening relations with Russia at the time. And, it, and uh, the signs were in both English and Russian. So he said he was practically inhaling the words as he was looking at this, the first English he had seen in, in weeks. And this man came by and tapped him on the shoulder and said, do you speak English? And John said, well, yes, I do. I'm from the United States. And the guy said, oh, great. I'd love to speak English to you. And it turned out to be Nikolai Vavilov, the famous Russian scientist. And he invited Niederhauser over to his offices. And he um, asked Niederhauser what he did, whether he had any experience in agriculture. And Niederhauser told him about Deep Springs and said, uh, well, I drove a tractor there with potatoes at Deep Springs. And he said, Vavilov uh, said, you drove a tractor? He said it was like he was a pilot on a supersonic transport or something. He said because they had just imported tractors from the United States, from the Ford company, and nobody knew how to drive them. So, so the Vilov said to Niederhauser, look, kid, uh, I'll make you a deal. Well, I'd love, love to get you down on, on one of our farms, and you teach the folks to um, – the tractors and we'll, we'll put you up and we'll teach you a little Russian and this kind of stuff. Why don't you spend the summer here? So Niederhauser said, well, that, that sounds great to me. And he decided to do it. And then he was about to go back to Cornell in the fall and, and the Vilov said, well, how'd you like it here? And Niederhauser said, great. And he said, well, why don't you stay on? I'd like to send you to the Russian Agricultural Academy. And Niederhauser said, oh, I can't do that. I've got to go back to Cornell. They probably wouldn't keep my scholarship for me. The Vilov said, I know everybody at Cornell. And he did. He'd been to Cornell to speak. And he said, just let me make a phone call. And uh, a little bit later, he came back and he said to Niederhauser, they'll hold your scholarship. Niederhauser said the guy was being so nice he couldn't refuse, even though he kind of <laughs> wanted to go back to the States. So he studied for a year at the agricultural economy, learned Russian, learned about potatoes in a, in a big way, came back knowing what he wanted to do, that he wanted to be a potato scientist, and uh, finished up his degrees in agriculture at Cornell. And then went on from there, gets this, and and goes on to Mexico, right? Right. So then, uh, after graduation, he um, he got a job with the Rockefeller uh, folks at the at the Simit, uh, the uh, big uh, agriculture research center in Mexico City that was sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation. Yeah, and he was growing potatoes there, and he was growing what were considered blight-resistant potatoes. Uh, they could be used in the States and other places, and they resisted the regular forms of potato blight that people were familiar with, and they were sending those out around the world. And this was part of his work there uh, in it, with people like Norman Gorlog, and, uh, who's also, I think, from Cresco, but the uh, the Green Revolution guy, anyway. Yes, he is. Yeah, so anyway... Um, Niederhauser then was transferred over to Toluca to start doing potatoes in the Toluca Valley and uh, near Mexico City. And the farmers there said, potatoes don't grow here. You can't grow potatoes here. And he said, why? He said, because they get blight immediately. They just, and he said, well, we have blight-resistant potatoes. Um, they'll, they'll work great. You know, I, uh, you know that's, that's why they sent me over here. And so he said he planted his blight-resistant potatoes, and uh, a month later they were all dead from blight. And he was like, 
uh, you know, what am I going to, what's going on here? And he realized there was some kind of light existence there that um, didn't really occur in other places, at least yet. And uh, he put two and two together and he found light resistant wild potatoes up on the slopes of this uh, Kaluka volcano. And he uh, knew Vavilov's theory, which is that if you had a place where you had wild species that were resistant to a disease, you had particular diseases and things that you had, uh, you'd probably located what Vavilov called the center of origin for the crop, that is where, uh, or the center of origin of the disease, either one. And so what... um, what Vavilov fig- or uh, Niederhauser figured out that this must be this place must have been the center of origin for potato blight, and somehow it got into shipments of potatoes that the Spanish took out. Uh, the Spanish Armada then went to to uh, Ireland, uh, but this stuff got released, and eventually um, it created uh, the the Irish potato blight because they weren't resistant. But it was only a couple of strains that got out. Now there were all these new strains that suddenly were... Uh, and so he started working on a, on a blight project to try to deal with these things. And he got undercut, actually. His, uh, there were companies that would tell Cornell or tell the Rockefeller folks that we'll cut your funding if you keep doing this work on potato blight. They wanted to sell chemicals and so forth. So Niederhausen's work was was undercut, but he kind of kept at it uh, under the wire. And then in the uh, 80s, these strains somehow got away. They got apparently uh, in a shipment of seed potatoes from Mexico. Uh, Mexico to the Netherlands and spread uh, this disease all over first Europe and then uh, North America and then into Russia and China. These new strains of potato blight, which became absolutely devastating for farmers. And so you had all kinds of potato farmers going belly up in the Dakotas and places like that in the mid to late 1980s. And then that's when I encountered Niederhauser in the 90s as he was trying to to uh, work with folks to deal with this new outbreak of potato blight. And I think one of the things that was that was different about Niederhauser's approach to to breeding for resistance to potato blight is, you know, most most breeding for disease resistance or even insect resistance is kind of in this lock and key mode. It's it's you know it's one gene that that doesn't yeah. allow things to match up. And well, Niederhauser we really took vertical a, resistance, right? Right. Where mm-hmm. where. Where John really took a he took a much more uh, much more approach around horizontal resistance, really building the idea that not that not that the disease wasn't going to affect the plant at all, but that the plant had the means to resist the disease rather than right. rather than completely avoid it altogether. Multiple gene resistance, exactly right, and that that was what John did, and he he produced uh, potatoes that were resistant to the new. Uh, right species, although most farmers really relied on just ever increasing types of chemicals and things to to control the new blight and um you know it worked, but it would cost i mean the the chemicalization of of this stuff has been become pretty extreme well, I know you know certainly up in places like uh northern Minnesota um you know, where there's a lot of potato production, northern and, and western Minnesota, that it's becoming an ever-increasing issue about out there about what's happening in those communities. And we certainly know about this here 
you know, throughout the Midwest with the effects of chemicals on communities. But it's potatoes oh, yeah. are, seem to take that a, a, a step beyond what we get with corn and soybeans. Yeah, they're they're more chemicalized than with practically any other crop. I think strawberries are probably the most, but, but potatoes are awful lot of chemicals uh, to deal with blight. So we were we were seeing that, seeing farmers just trying everything under the sun, every kind of chemical to try to prevent uh, potato blight, and sometimes succeeding and often failing still and going out of business. And so while that isn't, I think, as big. The, the loss of potatoes is not as big an issue as it was then. The chemicalization is even a bigger issue. Right. Right. And especially when you're looking at things from a, from a sustainability standpoint and, and how long that system's really going to work, because eventually I think one of the interesting things too, about, about late blight and potatoes is that it, when you get these different races, it does start to recombine and it can evolve resistance very rapidly to both chemicals right. and to genetic barriers. Yeah, so. because the, the blight has very different ways of reproducing, and I'm I'm not as up on that now as I was uh, 15 years ago when I was working closely with John Niederhauser, uh, but... Um, well, even a little more than 15 years ago, 20, 20 years ago now, I guess, is when I wow. started working with John Niederhauser. We finished the show about 15 years ago. So, And John died in 2005. Uh, he was 88. Just a, a remarkable guy. I mean, really wonderful fellow. I, I enjoyed his company. And But, you know, as, as John pointed out, um, this sort of science, is people aren't so known for these kind of things. Uh, John, and all the time that John worked in Mexico, no one cared about potatoes. What they cared about about John was that he was the commissioner of league, Little League Baseball there. He actually started the first Little League in Mexico because he wanted his two American sons to be able to play baseball because he was a baseball fanatic and, uh, and basketball too. He played basketball at Cornell. But uh, he was a baseball fanatic and there was no league. So he created the Mexican Little League and uh, only a couple of years after he started it, the interesting story, this was in 57, his son, John, who I also met, uh, was a pitcher for the Mexico City Little League team, and they lost the Mexican championship 2-1 to one to a team from Monterey, Mexico, which then went on to not only win the Little League World Series, the first non-American, non-U.S. team to win the Little League World Series, but uh, they did it with a perfect game, the first perfect game ever pitched in in Little League baseball. So John then became the commissioner of baseball for all of Latin America, the Little League. Yeah, Little League Baseball. So he said, I'm much more known in Mexico for Little League Baseball than anything I ever did with potatoes. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of funny how that I, how that works. You know what I mean? It is. I think it's kind of a classic story of farming up until really pretty recently that um, it's it. I mean, now it's kind of a, a, it seems like a glamorous profession with a lot of a lot of interest around it. And, you know, billboards out there saying how farmers are 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 heroes. But that certainly wasn't the case 20 years ago um, and no. for, for decades before that. That was not the way things worked. Well, I'm glad that's changing, and I'm glad to see a younger generation of folks who are interested in that. I frankly think we really need to fund those kind of things much better at the university level and other things. I mean, all the 
and they're always talking about STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, and I have nothing against science or any of those things, but I, I think uh, we need to focus a little bit more on that science education into things like uh, growing food sustainably and stuff and not have all the focus being on producing the latest new uh, gadget to you know take pictures of yourself and spread them out around the world. I think it's certainly a place where we could get a, I think we get a lot more value. And I, I think, I think also that, I mean, I, I studied horticulture at the university of Wisconsin. Well, actually John Niederhauser told me when I corresponded with him, he said that I needed to go to the university of Wisconsin. That's where I belonged. And I needed yeah. to study with Stan, with Stan Pelliquin there who, who ran the potato breeding program. And so that's, that's and what I, I went and did. Way back. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I met, yeah. So I had some connection with those folks at uh, Wisconsin, good group of, good group of people there. Um, again, it's a, a bit far back. So some of my memories are, but I think the strongest memory in them and the most, um, maybe relevant memory is that, uh, when you think of this, Vavilov, the character who, who really changed John Niederhauser's life in a way with this chance encounter uh, in the street in Russia, Vavilov was the world's leading geneticist. I mean, he was the guy who had all the ideas about where food, where crops originated, about breeding programs, about the importance of saving seeds and their diversity and all of those things. Uh, but he, um, and his, his ideas have done much to improve our, our, uh, food crops in, in the, in the world. But John, uh, excuse me, uh, Vanilov ran afoul of Stalin, who didn't think that the old genetic means of Mendelian genetics and breeding and stuff worked fast enough. And he had this character, Trofim Lysenko, who was uh, believed that you could just basically adapt crops much more quickly. So if you uh, wanted crops to, to um, plant them earlier through, do better in the winter, you would soak them in cold water and plant them. He had all kinds of ideas like this, and then he believed that their offspring would acquire uh, these characteristics. It was uh, nuttiness, I mean, crazy. But he, uh, he promised Stalin that there would be these Big miracles in agriculture if we did these things. And, and Vavilov opposed him and as a result ran afoul of Stalin and was uh, taken prisoner, uh, put in the gulag. And eventually, in 1943, uh, Vavilov died of malnutrition. I mean, the guy who probably did more than anyone to improve world food crops died of, of malnutrition because of Stalin and the opposition to science. Now, it's interesting how ideology influences science in that regard, and today we're seeing it from the opposite side. We're seeing, uh, you know, the, the denial of climate change, of all kinds of things like that, which um, are surely going to affect our agriculture and our crops and many things, and this time we're seeing it not from the left and from Stalin, but from the right. Well, I think what we're what we're what we're seeing is not dissimilar. It's a it's an entrenched power structure that doesn't want to for for whom the science doesn't align with their their ideology. political beliefs with their right. ideology. Yeah, yeah. It's, so uh, uh, that's the same, and it and we do really need science education in this country. Uh, in a big way, we need to understand crops, and we need to understand how we can we can sustainably provide for 
for people uh, with massive reductions in the use of these of these chemicals and and the uh, petroleum and, and all of that. I'm not saying we can break from all that completely immediately, but that is the direction we have to go in, and that's where we should be concentrating our. Um, I think our resources, our educational resources, I'm not putting, I'm not saying that absolutely everything about biotechnology is bad. And I did a film called uh, uh, Silent Killer about uh, world hunger and looked at some of the some of the ways of dealing with that. And I, I don't take a completely anti-genetic uh, engineering point of view, but by my real feeling is that we put way too much resources and money and stuff in that as a solution when in fact there are far better and more sustainable and effective solutions to be had out there with uh, selecting the right the right seeds with uh, growing in different ways with you know various kinds of planting patterns uh, using um, biological controls that are effective all of those kind of things uh, that we should be spending money to improve rather than putting all that money into, into biotech. I, I absolutely agree. I think, and I, I actually think it's probably almost a given with most of our listeners there. Um, I, I really, I love the, I love the stories about, about the genetics. Now you, I mean, you've done a lot of work on that front. Now you also did a film on, uh, on Fairview gardens and Michael Abelman's work there. Right. Yeah. This is more about the urban side of this, you know, of, of uh, growing things in, in urban settings. So Michael Abelman, and a, uh, who was a, who was an organic farmer and a photographer and a writer, and actually terrific, beautiful books he wrote, uh, led a fight to save this two-acre, three-acre, maybe uh, urban garden in Goleta, California. Fairview Gardens is right by the University of California at Santa Barbara. And this uh, was a wonderful garden that the community had built, and it was really threatened because suburban development was just growing all around it, and the land was very valuable, and the owners of the land who had leased it to the to the community um, were being pre- pushed by their kids to sell it uh, for for money because it was becoming so valuable, and uh, Michael Abelman and others were able to to get the community together uh, and to um, to buy that land and to keep it as a demonstration organic farm and garden uh, doing, I think, uh, wonderful things and showing uh, what can be done. So I made a film Beyond Organic about Michael, and one of the points that Michael made was that organic is just the beginning. We also need to be thinking about doing things locally so that we don't have to transport everything 1,500 miles from uh, farm to table. Uh, we need to think about the justice for the for the people who are working on the farms, both the, the independent farmers, but also in many cases the farm workers, uh, particularly in, in the large farms and so forth. We need to we need to think about a whole lot of things, not just organic. And I think I think that was a. I really like Michael's leadership on that on that front. You know, thinking about this not as just a uh, not just changing the farming, but really changing the food system altogether. Right, right. and I think that's his. And Michael's now has a wonderful farm 
in British Columbia called Foxglove Farm up on Salt Spring Island in uh, in British Columbia. So he's continuing the work, continuing the speaking, and so forth. And uh, John Jevons, who uh, created the the garden that I profile in a film called Circle of Plenty in Willits, California took the Alan Chadwick method and has uh, really done enormous research over a 40-year period to show how that kind of small-scale uh, agriculture can be enormously productive and in many places be an effective uh, means of growing food, especially where um, labor is plentiful and machines are not and so forth. So um, there's a lot of these exciting projects going on. John uh, John Jevons' uh, idea has spread to many countries and places like Kenya, Mexico, and other places that are doing this uh, biodynamic, French-intensive uh, method in in different ways and learning how to grow food, grow nutrition and stuff on much smaller spaces using very sustainable, very organic techniques. John, we're going to break here for just a moment to get a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. Fertrell got its start because the founder, John Johnson, didn't feel like his chemically fertilized roses were meeting his expectations for fragrance and endurance. Johnson found that by mixing organic vegetable, animal, and mineral compounds, the roses soon obtained maximum performance. When rose growers get behind something, you know it's effective. Since that time, Fertrell has built a reputation for quality and service that's second to none. Each product is built upon years of experience and has been time-tested for maximum results. All of their blends are produced in-house, and the organic fertilizers have been formulated to meet organic standards with a full-season release of vital macro and micronutrients. With experience with all types of producers, from backyard hobbyists to full-scale production facilities, Fertrell has the knowledge and products to help you get the most out of your your crops, whether you raise crops and livestock organically, conventionally, or somewhere in between. Fertrell, better naturally. Fertrell.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. Carl Hammer, the founder and the owner of the company, likes to describe potting soil as a set of promises. A promise that it has the nutrients the plant needs, that it has the microbes the plant needs to help forage those nutrients, and that it's free of weed seeds. I used Vermont Compost Sport V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some great transplants with it year after year in soil blocks and in traditional cell flats. We even grew rosemary plants in pots for multiple years. A real testament to the structure of the soil which can keep the microbes alive over an extended period of time and provide good aeration for the roots in an ongoing basis when you put plants in containers whether it's a five-year-old rosemary in a 20-gallon nursery can or a 24-day-old lettuce seedling in a 1020 cell tray you need an optimized matrix of materials that can produce a healthy plant within a restricted media volume vermont compost potting soils provide just that consistently year after year vermontcompost.com and now back to the interview with John DeGraff. Now you're in you're in Seattle now, which I always think of as being one of the hotbeds of of the local food scene um, out there because you've got this relatively mild climate. You've got the um, you know you you've really you, you've got a, a very hip urban environment out mm-hmm. there. Um, what I, I'd be interested as as kind of an outside observer uh, who's been working on on stories about food for, for a long time now, what, what you think about the directions that, that food is going in this country? 
Well, I think a lot of it's pretty exciting. I mean, I, I, as with everything else, you're seeing counter tendencies. So I think we're still seeing more conglomeration, uh, you know, more of that kind of stuff, more artificial stuff, uh, obviously a lot more GMO uh, use and stuff, a lot more foods that are containing GMOs that people are not necessarily aware of. Uh, people have been trying to make them aware by, by passing laws that would at least require labeling, which I think is the absolute minimum that we need to do, but, but the interests are very powerful. And so, um, and we have a lot of young people who would like to get into farming, but again, don't necessarily know how to do it. It takes time. Uh, if we had training programs that were in our universities could help with that, that would uh, that would be an important thing. But we're seeing very positive stuff as well. A lot of young people who are interested, who are doing this. Uh, one of these, this is probably a good place to segue into my other big interest, which is this question of time and overwork. Because if we do want people to, uh, you know, support local, if you want people to grow portions of their food uh, and so forth, then uh, they need time to do that. And when we're working 50, 60 hours a week, uh, really there's no time left to do anything except fall on the couch and watch the television. So uh, I think the whole fight to shorten work time to to be thinking about a 32-hour or a 30-hour work week in this country, more vacation time, uh, that all of those things are essential for a lot of reasons. Number one, as unemployment grows and we have uh, this robotization of everything and with new computer technologies taking over more and more jobs, we're going to see enormous amount of of unemployment. Uh, some people are saying that we may lose 47% of American jobs in the next two decades, for example. So there's only two things you can do with that. You either grow and grow and grow and produce more and more and more in order to keep those people employed, uh, which is not sustainable because we are facing serious resource limits, climate limits, all kinds of things of, of that sort of thing. We can't grow on like this in, in that sense. But the other alternative is to shorten and share work time so that uh, if we can produce this stuff, with, uh, we're more productive, we can produce with less time, then let's not work so much. Let's share the work so that everybody has a chance of a job. Uh, let's use some things like basic income guarantees uh, to, to make sure that people have basic security and then give folks that extra time, that extra 10 hours a week, whatever it amounts to, to devote to their health, their families, uh, their gardens, their community, their food, uh, choosing the right foods, cooking food, I mean, all of those kinds of things, which are very difficult to do in this rush, rush, stress, stress kind of society we live in currently. I was just reading today on a, on a CSA discussion list that I'm on, uh, somebody commenting about getting complaints from CSA members about how they're, they're simply getting too many vegetables. And I, and I thought as I was getting ready for this interview, you know, I think, I think that doesn't have to do so much with, well, I think for some people it has to do with, they don't like vegetables. Um, <clears throat> We eat an appallingly small amount of produce in this country, right. but, um, but I think a lot of it does have to do with I don't have time to cut up a rutabaga. I don't have time to figure out what to do with the beets. Uh, right. You know, it's, 
Now, I also think this this issue of overwork, I mean, this is a I think a fairly large topic among among growers and especially mm-hmm. um you know especially when we're dealing with produce or with livestock um which are extremely demanding uh on your time in a fairly low margin enterprise you know it's and and you've you guys just did a big a big rollout on March 31st of this vacation commitment day that, that was I think geared towards employers and employees to say hey you know use the vacation time that you've already got be committed to doing that um and employers give people the time because we have about a quarter of American paid workers who get no paid vacation time and that that's unheard of in other countries and I'm curious about how that again this this segues into a conversation that I was having yesterday with with somebody about about farm labor issues and how do you how do you pull all of this together when when so much of the food economy is a it's kind of a low margin high risk uh, high skill um, place to place to work how how does somebody how do you, how do you start to fit the vacation time in there? Well, you know, it is a it is a tough thing, and and uh, the I, I know farmers work long long hours. Uh, you know, I've got relatives. My my wife's uh, brothers are farmers, um, and they uh, they they work a kind of this seasonal thing where some parts of the year they're just working like caps madness, you know, planting and, and harvesting and, and stuff. But but they do um, make sure to take these kind of uh, breaks, winter breaks and other kinds of things when things are, are, are slower uh, and because they know that they'll burn out if they don't and it's, it's good for them. So I think thinking about that and planning ahead is important. And maybe that you're not going to, as a farmer, be able to take your vacation when necessarily when everybody else is, but uh, you do need that downtime and you do need to think about it. But I think the other side to that is that we as Americans ultimately need to, to understand the value of food and, and pay more in a sense for, uh, for the work that's being done out there in, in the fields and, and such, and the people who were working the long hours. When I when I made my film uh, Dairy Queens, as it was called, a silly name, but uh, anyway, as Alice Tripp said, well, at least you didn't call us Corn Flakes. But uh, anyway, when I made that film, one of the things that Ann Kenton said was that it's, it's just so unfair that the people who were working so long, the farmers who were out there 12 to 14 hours a day, you know, um, the people producing the food, uh, can't make a living, and that the producers of the uh, many of the producers of our food are actually uh, getting food stamps. You know, so this is a very strange contradiction in a country as wealthy as ours. Now we we put a lot of subsidies into agriculture, into farming, but it it seems from my perspective, and I'm not an expert on this, so you may probably know a lot more than I do, but it seems to me that it's uh, targeted in the wrong places to these big, big companies uh, rather than to the small small farmers and growers. It would make it possible for them to get more help, maybe not have to work such endless hours, and, and produce healthier, higher quality food for us. We'd have to pay a little more for it, and we'd have to you know, support it with some tax dollars in the right kind of subsidies and subsidies also for better training and things. But to me, those are the kind of decisions a smart country would begin to make 
we if we simply rely on the market to solve all of this, it's really not going to happen. And I think we have to um, we have to be very smart about. Uh, social and, and other programs, including subsidy programs, uh, we have to understand what we what we want in this country. And I think we certainly want quality food, and we want farming to be an occupation that people will want to go into, that they can make a decent living, and that they, that they don't have to work themselves to death. Well, and I think to some degree, this this also circles back to uh, our our opening discussion having to do with with Nikolai Vavilov, because part of the reason why um, why the he was in a position to be forced out uh, and to be jailed for his beliefs was because of the incredible importance that the Soviet Union pay, placed at that time on food sovereignty, that they realized that they couldn't afford to be subject to having imports coming from other places, that they really needed to have their own their own source of food. And even though they were, they, they were misguided in how they went about that, I think um, they, but they certainly did, um, they they understood that it it they needed to create the economy such as it is at home to make that happen rather than relying on it to strawberries from China. Um, exactly. No, that's that's very true. Now, obviously, the ways they went about some of that, um, the Vilov's work was groundbreaking and, and incredible. You know, uh, and was originally very much encouraged by the Soviet government. So, you know, there were not very many people in that day who would get the okay of the Soviet government to travel all over the world collecting seeds and doing these things. So, the Vilov was a big deal until the. 30s when things began to sort of turn sour for the Soviet Union and uh, when the collective farms started to fail, um, various various things like that were, were being, being obvious. The rebellion was growing and uh, Stalin needed a quick answer to solve these things and instead of turning to people like Zovilov and, and being smart about what was done, he, he turned to charlatans like Lysenko. And uh, so, yes, but I think the, the original goal was to make the the country self-sufficient. In, and uh, you, you read the old Russian novels, you know, Quiet Flows the Dawn, all these kind of things. And you, you certainly get a lot of those kind of stories about how we, we really want to figure out how to grow our own and depend on ourselves and so forth. And I think particularly interesting in the in the produce world right now with what's going on with the drought in California and, and we're starting to see more and more talk about needing to not just as a not just as something that's economically desirable or something that's culturally desirable, but that maybe having put all of our eggs in this one basket for for production, you know, one geographic basket, but also one genetic basket uh, maybe wasn't the smartest thing to do. Well, I think we, we know it wasn't the smartest thing to do. Of course, you can't change all this overnight. And if you try to change everything overnight, then you also run into a rather major problem. So we have to just be moving, starting to move effectively in the right direction and turning these kinds of things around. Yeah. And uh, we have to, we have to, I think, also work with people that we don't necessarily agree with on everything because one of the, I have to tell this story because, and, and some of your listeners may, may like it, some may not, but when I was uh, working on the genetic, uh, on my, my various films, uh, one of the things I had the opportunity to do when I worked on Genetic Time Bomb was to spend a bunch of time with Norman Borlaug. 
And uh, I had friends who just reviled this guy. I mean, the Green Revolution, their view was that it was just unalterably uh, a bad thing. It was just a terrible thing. Uh, they believed quite firmly, in fact, that Borlaug was just some agent of, of massive corporations wanting to get rid of poor farmers so the corporations could grab all the land. And these were the kind of stories out there. Now, I personally met and spent time with Norman Borlaug, and I can assure you that this guy was nothing like the caricature. He was a guy who um, lived in a single small room at this cement. Uh, kind of by himself. He was one of the few scientists there who always ate with all the Mexican workers in the cafeteria, not out in the fancy places. He was very committed to uh, dealing with world hunger. That's what he wanted to do. He realized that there were very real negative side effects of the Green Revolution. He also believed that it had prevented a lot of famine and starvation. And I, I think um, we have to have a conversation that doesn't uh, just immediately get into this completely polarizing good guys, bad guys, white hat, black hat, etc. kind of thing. Because I frankly think that progressives kind of drove Norm Borlaug into being uh, the reactionary that he was at the very end of his career, but was not before. In fact, when I talked to him, he was he was very clear that he had come out of the New Deal tradition, that he was really uh, a progressive guy, that he, I mean, this guy really, for instance, hated what he saw, felt uh, Ronald Reagan had done to the, the country in terms of um, destroying the social programs and so forth. But I think this one, that we have to be more nuanced in these conversations. I like that. I like that a lot. And I think it, again, I think it fits in well with, with kind of the theme of what we've been talking about today of sort of this multi-pronged approach to, um, you know, whether, whether we're talking about genetic resistance or genetic diversity or, or even, um, creating a more sustainable food system by having a, you know, by reducing work hours, you know, that's, those are all kind of interesting. There's a lot of, there's a lot of intertie in there. And it's, I think it's, uh, I mean, one of the funny little, little, themes as just as we're talking today, you know, sort of as I, as I, as I go, well, you know, this podcast is here because John Niederhauser bumped into Nikolai Vavilov in Moscow all those years ago, which is kind of what ultimately resulted in me somehow getting pushed into agriculture and, you know, all of that. It's, it doesn't take, I think sometimes there are very little leverage points that result in lots of other little leverage points and, yeah. and it really is kind of a, a networked approach to solving problems. And, that's, and, that's I, right. I, and we're going to have to work together more with, with folks and, uh, you know, um, just, uh, stop some of the, the, the hyperbole and figure out how we, uh, we create a more balanced approach that moves us uh, as quickly as possible in the right direction, which is clearly toward a much more organic, sustainable, locally produced um, food with better nutritional qualities and all those kind of things. But uh, um, it, it, it takes time. It takes a lot of people. Um, I frankly, <laughs> my wife knows that I don't do anything much in this field in a practical sense myself. I'm more of a, a spoke, you know, a communicator, a spokesperson. But I'm I'm always incredibly honored to tell the stories of people who are who are doing this work that's so important. You know, one can't do everything, and I I feel like if I tried to do everything, I would have no time in my life. So 
I'll sort of stick with my role as a communicator, and, and uh, but I'm, I'm just uh, excited with the things that you're doing and with the other things that I've seen in the Cora. I hope I get there again sometime soon. See my good friends there. It just was a great place. So it is a great place. John, this is this has been really great. Can you tell us where people should go to find out more about your your current work and and your current organization, the the uh, Take Back Your Time group? Absolutely. That, that's an easy one. Uh, people should just go to takebackyourtime.org and uh, they'll find our website there and a lot of uh, good information. Uh, they should also check out the other organization I've been involved in what has been this uh, happiness initiative now called the Happiness Alliance. And that website is just happy counts, H-A-P-P-Y-C-O-U-N-T-S dot O-R-G. And on that, uh, they'll find a survey that takes about 15 minutes to do. And it, it uh, asks a lot of questions about aspects of people's lives and their their well-being and their happiness. And it's fun. When you finish it, you get an immediate score in 10 key areas of life that we know are important for happiness. Uh, and uh, you can also see what 50,000 other people have, have gotten who have, who have completed that survey. Now, one of the things that it shows is that the, the lowest scores in the United States, at least, come in the area of life we call time balance. So that fits right in, of course, with the other work that I'm involved in. And uh, so uh, we need to change the food system. We need to grow more stuff. We need to be local, support the local businesses. But we we are going to need time to do that. And if we're in this rat race and stressed out, I think we will we will always go for the lowest common denominator. We'll do the junk. We'll do what's quick and cheap. John, let me ask a question about that about that last website that you mentioned, uh, the happiness the happiness mm-hmm. project. Is that is that survey something that people can take multiple times? Is that something that people can oh, yeah. use as say, yeah. a, a quality of life and measure can, year yeah, over, year over year? Absolutely. You just uh, you just sign in uh, to it, and if if in order to do that to preserve your results, so that your results keep coming back and you see where you were all the time, you do have to sign in. You can take the survey without doing that, and you'll see your immediate results, but they won't be preserved for you. So you'd have to write them down, or or you know Xerox the page, or or whatever, copy the page. But um, uh, you can uh, you can sign in, and you can and and uh, groups of people can can do this with their own uh, with a group. They can uh, they won't see each in each person's individual scores, but they'll see uh, how they they uh, the group did overall, and the individuals will see their own scores. In fact, Decora was one of the first places that actually tried this survey out as a as a community. Um, I, I don't know that that many people took the survey, but one of the things we found from it um, when Decora did that, and I was in Decora talking about that a few years ago, was that uh, Decora is a pretty happy place uh, compared with. Um, much of America. Yeah, I think that's I I can see why I can see that being the case. Um having get, gotten around quite a bit and and also having lived here for a number of years. So. Yeah, I think I think the core scores on average were around 5 points higher than the national average. And and that 5 points out of 100 is actually fairly significant. Yeah, that that adds up. That adds up. All right. Well, John, I hope we see you out here again soon. Um yeah. Okay. So, well, it's great. Uh, 
great to be on your program, Chris. Keep up the good work. And uh, uh, thank you so much for generously sharing your time and and your and your perspective with us today. I really do appreciate it. Okay, great. Pleasure was mine. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 14 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find links to the things that we mentioned today in today's episode by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com and searching for DeGraff, that's D-E space G-R-A-A-F. And like I say, we'll have the links to to the, the various books and resources and organizations that were mentioned on the show today. If you're not already listening to this show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast app of your choice, I really encourage you to subscribe to get new episodes as soon as they're released. I'm uh, always surprised when I find out people that have said they've listened to a bunch of episodes, but they haven't actually uh, pushed that subscription button yet. Thank you also to everyone who has taken the time to leave a rating or review. The more fresh comments we get, the higher it drives the show in the iTunes ratings, which really does make a difference in how many people this show reaches. If you like what you hear, think about signing up for my newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga, at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Of course, that's free, so you should, I mean, it costs nothing to look at it in the inbox for a couple of weeks and decide if it's something you want to keep or something you want to hit the unsubscribe button on. And one more thing, if you've hung on this long, I'd like to know what questions you, my listener, have that my guests or I might be able to answer in the podcast. Please let me know on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork, uh, or use the contact page on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Anything about farming and farm life is fair game. And if you want to be anonymous, just let me know and I won't mention your name on air. If we choose to use your questions on air, I'll even send you a Farmer to Farmer podcast mug. Also, with this show, I would really love to get some feedback from folks on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork or on the farmertofarmerpodcast.com website about having somebody like John on the show, a little bit outside of what I've been doing with with really kind of a strict focus on farmers and people that are very closely involved with agriculture, thinking about somebody who's who's really coming at it with an outside perspective, but has some knowledge and, and really some interesting stories to tell. I'd love to get your feedback. Thank you so much. Keep the tractor running.